Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you again this morning. I have some good news. How many would like to hear some good news? I know all of you would. The good news is that God takes care of his people. One way or another, he always takes care of those who are devoted to him. As Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And as the psalmist reminds us, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. Amen, church? Well, again, it's good to be with you this morning. After our Easter hiatus from 1 Corinthians, I thought it appropriate that we turn back to Corinthians, we pick up our study, and that we return to some sense of normalcy, if you will. I want to talk to you this morning out of chapter 7 want to rehearse some of the things we've already talked about just by way of reminder. I've titled the message, Marriage or Singleness, and that's always on the minds of people. In chapter 7, Paul begins to answer several questions that the Corinthians had for him. If we recall from the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, Luke reminds us that Paul spent a year and a half, 18 months, teaching the word of God to the Corinthians. It's now three years later, and the Corinthians have some questions. And the first of those questions deals with the issues of marriage and singleness. And these issues were reflected from the pagan and morally corrupt society in which the Corinthians lived, and from which they had not yet fully separated. Their society tolerated fornication, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, and the keeping of mistresses. The Corinthian church members that had lived together and were still living together There were also those who had multiple marriages and divorces. Not only that, but some believers had gotten the notion that being single and celibate was more spiritual than being married, and hence they would disparage marriage entirely. It may have been that someone was teaching that sex was unspiritual and should be altogether abandoned. The situation was difficult and it was perplexing even for mature Christians and for immature Christians it was even especially confusing. The great question was for the Corinthians now that we're believers what do we do? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we're both believers? Should we get divorced if our spouse is an unbeliever? 
Should we become or remain single? And Paul will seek to bring clarity where there has been confusion about these issues. He starts with the question of singleness, telling them that celibacy is good, but it can be a source of sexual temptation. He'll go on to say that it's wrong for married people to practice celibacy, and in fact, that it is a gift from God. So again, by way of review and reminder, read with me this, the seven, first seven verses of chapter 7. Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the first two verses of chapter 7, Paul says that celibacy is good, but also it can leave one open to sexual temptation. So when he says, it is good for a man not to marry, in the NIV, or it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, from the ESV, he's literally saying, it's not good, or it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He's saying that singleness, as long as it is celibate, can be a good thing. He is not saying that it is the only good condition. He's not saying that marriage is somehow inferior. Now remember that Corinth was a hotbed of idolatry. It was a hotbed of immorality. And Jewish Christians in Corinth had a high view of marriage. If you recall from the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God commanded the man and the woman to increase in number, fill the earth, and they were to become one flesh together. So it's very possible that Jewish Christians with that high view of marriage were probably pressuring Gentile believers to become married. On the other hand, Gentile believers, probably because of their past experiences and reacting to the sexual sin of their past, came to look on celibacy as the truly godly state for them. Singleness is good, but it's not more spiritual, and it's not more acceptable to God than marriage. And the same is true for marriage. Marriage is not more spiritual, and it's not more acceptable to God than being single. But, he says, if the sexual temptations prove to be too strong and you're single, then marriage is for you. And in verses 3 through 5, he tells us that celibacy is wrong for the married. Apparently, some thought that celibacy was a mark of spirituality. And they practice it in their marriages. Paul calls this practice, in verse 5, literally fraud. 
He says, stop depriving one another. Literally in the Greek text, stop defrauding one another. Then in verses 6 and 7, he says that a person's singleness and state of celibacy may in fact be a gift from God. And that he doesn't give that to everyone. But it can be a source of great blessing. Now look at with me from verses 8 through 16. He says, Now to the married and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But... If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in that passage, Paul gives instructions for marriage. First, to the unmarried and the widows. The unmarried means the formerly married, presumably divorced. He says to them, it is good for them to stay single. Paul is probably answering a question of those people who want to know their options. Can or should we remarry? If singleness and celibacy are too much in terms of their sexual temptation they'll face, then he says in verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with sensual desire a person cannot live a happy life much less serve the lord if continually burning with sexual desire even if the desire doesn't lead to immorality paul next has instructions for believers married to other believers in verses 10 and 11 look with me again at those verses to the married i give this command not i but the lord A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. And the point is, they're not to leave. They're not to divorce. And this is based on Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19. The only exception is for marital unfaithfulness or adultery. In chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, we read in verse 3, some Pharisees came to him, meaning Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, most of you are aware that the Jews believed they could divorce for any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, 
that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, we don't know why some of these Corinthians wanted to divorce. Possibly, some Corinthian women believe now they were emancipated and they could do whatever they wished. Probably, some of the Corinthians believed that they could live more holy and dedicated lives as celibates and single. Some maybe saw someone more desirable, or maybe they were unfulfilled and simply wanted a change. Whatever the reasons, they were not to separate. They were not to divorce. And if they did, they were to remain unmarried or reconcile. You see, in God's eyes, the marriage is meant to be for life, except in the case of irreconcilable unfaithfulness. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. Strong word. Divorce is despicable in God's eyes. In his sight, he hates it. Don't do it. Next, in verses 12 through 14, Paul deals with the issue of believers married to unbelievers and unbelievers who want to stay married. He says, to the rest. So now he's addressing mixed marriages. He says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as, as it is, they are holy. So what were believers to do who were married to unbelievers, even possibly to immoral and idolatrous pagans? Were they free to leave? Were they free to divorce? Were they free because they're unequally yoked to live singly or to find a believer to be married to? So he says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Meaning, Jesus had not addressed this issue particularly. So Paul, being full of the Spirit, being an apostle, can speak authoritatively and give wise and godly counsel on the issue. Believers were not to worry that they or their marriage or their children would somehow be defiled by the unbelieving spouse. On the contrary, the presence of a believing spouse should in fact be a blessing to the unbeliever and to those children. 
God's grace and God's mercy should spill over from the believer's life to enrich all those who are in that home. Next, in verses 15 and 16, Paul speaks to the situations in which believers are married to unbelievers who want to leave. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If the unbelieving spouse wants to go, let him or her go. Don't contest their living, their leaving, and don't contest any divorce. The marriage bond is dissolved three ways. One, by death. Second, unfaithfulness. And thirdly, by an unbeliever's leaving or abandonment. When that bond is dissolved, the believer is free to move on with their life and even to remarry. The believing spouse, Paul says, has no assurance that the unbelieving spouse will believe And if he or she stays reluctantly or under compulsion, there's almost guaranteed disruption of any family peace. Extending the principle that God has called believers to live in peace, Paul next teaches that the Christian should live contentedly in whatever station of life in which God places him. Read with me from verses 17 through 24. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, what's he he saying to us? Not only in marriage or singleness, the believer should live for the Lord. Whatever the social, economic, and religious level of society they were in. In other words, we can sum it up by this phrase, bloom where you're planted. Wherever God has planted you, when he's called you, when he saved you, what station of life were you in? Bloom there. In fact, this is such an important principle that Paul repeats it three times in verses 17, verse 20, and verse 24. Let me rehearse those verses again for you. Verse 17, he says, Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned him to and to which has God, God has called him 
in verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Verse 24, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, verse 24 literally says, let him remain with God. What does that mean? Well, it's as if Paul is saying, God is there with you to help you in whatever situation you find yourself. However he's planted you, bloom there. He's there with you. He's not going to leave you or abandon you. Next, in verses 25 through 40, Paul gives reasons for remaining single. His instructions, his counsel to those who never married. And there he addresses other, another question the Corinthians posed. What about virgins and marriage? In other words, those who have never been married. Read with me from verse 25. He said, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as to one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. What I mean, brothers, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not, and those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So Paul is instructing us in these verses. He's addressing this other question. He says, he talks about the advisability in this present situation of remaining in an unmarried state. That's what it means by a virgin, someone who's never been married. In his discussion of marriage and singleness, remember, Paul has made clear that neither state is spiritually better than the other. Being married or being single has nothing in itself to do with spirituality. A married person for whom it is the Lord's will to be married, no more or no less spiritual than a single person for whom it is God's will to be single. Spirituality is based on one thing, he says in verse 19, obedience to God. Spirituality is based on keeping God's commands. That's what counts. To the one God has called and gifted to singleness, there are several practical advantages. In other words, singleness makes good sense for a number of reasons. Look with me at verse 25. In verse 25, Paul says this. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul's teaching, he's saying, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's trustworthy. You can depend on it. And it is authoritative, though it is not given as a command. The first reason Paul gives for remaining as you are, in other words, single or married, is the present crisis. 
Now, we don't really know what that he's referring to, what the present crisis was. It could simply refer to the world situation of his day, possibly including persecution and or conflict with the ungodly system around them. They may have been living in a very critical time. Persecution is difficult enough for a single person, but the problems and pain are multiplied for the one who is married. Just imagine if Paul were married how his suffering would have been magnified by his concern for his family and also uh, their concerns for his safety and well-being. Those who were already married were not to divorce because marriage is a lifelong bond broken only by death, marital unfaithfulness, or desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Other problems trials, difficulties, no matter how severe, are never grounds for divorce. Now, let me just address the issue of abuse. We know that's a major problem in many relationships. And if a person, a spouse is being abused, then I would counsel that spouse to leave, but not to divorce for her own or his own safety. If you are married, he says, Don't seek to get married. This is not a command, simply godly advice. Why? Because it's hard enough for the sinner to live by him or herself, let alone with another sinner. When you put two sinners together, you're going to have problems for the rest of that marriage. And he says that those who marry, verse 28, will face many troubles in this life, And I want to spare you this. In verses 29 through 31, he tells them that the time is short. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Now, what does he mean by that? He's talking about human life being short. It's brief. And in times of persecution, life is often made even more brief. For husbands and wives to live as though they weren't married, Paul is not teaching that their marriage is no longer binding or that marital responsibilities are somehow lessened. Marriage lasts for a whole life. It's therefore as brief as that life. Yet a brief life and difficult circumstances do not reduce the obligations and the responsibilities of husbands and wives. So what is Paul teaching? Paul is teaching that the primary affections of every believer should be toward the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, he tells us to set our minds and hearts on things above. In other words, he's saying, be heavenly minded so that you're some earthly good. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, do not love the world or the things of the world, 
that's not where the love of God is. And of course, Jesus' own statement in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things that you're concerned about, he'll take care of them. Whatever his will is for your life. So Paul is teaching that life, and especially life as a believer, is a matter of priorities. And he highlights five areas of common, common life, life that's common to all of us. And none of these things are inherently bad. Marriage, sorrow, rejoicing, passions, pleasure, all have a proper place in a believer's life. But human relationships and emotions and possessions and pleasures become sinful when they take priority and when they dominate our thoughts and our lives, especially when they keep us from serving the Lord. They get in the way, and I think we all understand that. While we thank God for every good gift, we should not overvalue them knowing that they are passing away. In verses 32 through 35, brings us back to the benefits of singleness to marriage. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her, aims, her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, the married person's interests and concerns are divided. They're divided between the temporal and earthly and the spiritual and the heavenly, as it should be. Single believers are not necessarily more righteous. They're not necessarily more faithful than married ones, but they are able because of less family obligations to be more devoted to kingdom work. Married Christians, Paul is saying, should not feel be guilty about being married and unmarried Christians should not feel guilty about getting married. It's not Paul's purpose to add to the burdens and cares that the married already have. Nor is it his purpose to force single believers into the permanent mold of singleness. His point is this. Look with me again at verse 35. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Marriage does not prevent great devotion to the Lord, and singleness does not guarantee it. But singleness has fewer hindrances and more advantages. It's easier for a single person to be single-minded in the things of the Lord. The married believer has no choice. His or her interests must be divided. In fact, if he or she can't be faithful to the Lord 
They can't be faithful to the Lord if they are unfaithful to their family. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I don't know how you can get worse than an unbeliever, but that's a terrible place. The single person, however, has a choice. He or she is free to marry or not. Not under restriction, not under restraint. The choice is not between right and wrong. The choice is between good and better. Again, Paul isn't putting a legalistic noose around the neck of single Christians. They're not under compulsion either to marry or remain single. In advising them to remain as they were, he has two motives, both of them for their own good, he says. He wanted to spare them trouble, if you go back to verse 28. And he wants to spare them concern from verse 32. And he wanted them to have undivided devotion to the Lord. With that thought in mind, look with me at Luke's gospel, chapter 10. This is a familiar passage to many of us. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he had said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, why don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So do you see, it's not right or wrong. It's good and better. What's the better thing? That's what Paul has in mind for us. Then in verses 36 through 38, he has a specific situation in mind. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry her, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. You see, there may have been a situation where there's a betrothed or engaged couple and the man under pressure to remain single from those who believe that singleness was much more spiritual, he's vacillating. And he's thus treating the virgin or his betrothed improperly. But if the guy really wants to marry her and he's not getting, and she's not getting any younger, then marry her. He's not being less spiritual and he's not sinning in doing so. But if there is no pressure either from those advocating singleness as being more spiritual or from the virgin to get married and he decides to break off the engagement 
that too is okay. Notice how Paul describes the man in verse 37. He has settled the matter in his own mind. He is under no compulsion. He has control over his own will. He has made up his mind. So then, verse 38, if he marries her, he has not sinned and done the right thing. If he doesn't marry her, he has done, Paul says, even better. But not because one situation is inherently better than the other. That's precisely what Paul has argued against throughout chapter 7. What makes the situation better is found in verse 26 when he says, because of the present crisis, whatever that may have been. And then again in verse 28, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. And then in verse 35, that they may live in undivided devotion to the Lord. And lastly, verses 39 through 40 there's a final word while the earlier verses were addressed to the man there is a final word for married women as well woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the lord in my judgment she is happier if she stays as she is And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is directed, probably, at women who may be trying to dissolve their marriages for one reason or another. And it focuses on the permanence of the marriage relationship in the sense of being lifelong. In other words, as long as both partners are alive. If the marriage partner dies... The remaining spouse, widow, even widower, can remarry, but only to another believer. But remarriage, Paul says, is not the ideal. It isn't God's best for everyone. Paul says, in my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. Now, he says this is not a command, but rather it's counsel for the benefit and the blessing of one who will take it. A widowed person who has God's grace for singleness will be happier to remain single. And he sums all this up by saying, this is, this is the counsel that he's giving. It's wise, wise counsel, wise advice. Because why? He says it's the advice of the Holy Spirit. It's the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Now let me close with some final comments. Falling in love does not constitute adequate grounds for marriage. Falling out of love does not grant a person the right to divorce. And when someone is considering marriage, they need to think and they need to answer these five questions. Number one, what is my gift from God? Number two, am I marrying a believer? Number three, are the circumstances such that marriage is right? Is this what God's will is for me? Number four, 
How will marriage affect my service for Jesus Christ? And number five, am I prepared to enter into this union for life? Jesus said, let your yes be yes. Very often I'll ask people who are in marriage counseling with me. I'll say, did you ever say at some point till death do us part? Yes, I did. Did you mean it then when you said it? Yes, mean it today. God gives grace for those who trust him. You can trust him if that's the case and you're struggling. Be it single or married. I hope this helps. Gives you some perspective on marriage and singleness. I know it's a quick overview, but you can reread the passage on your own. If you have questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Just send them to me and I'll be able to respond to you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have your very, very best interests for us. We thank you for your servant, Paul, who answers our questions and gives us counsel and direction. We thank you, God, for the married state. We thank you for the single state. We thank you for how you gift us. We thank you for the callings you place in our life. We thank you that your will for us is good and pleasing and perfect. Lord, I pray for those who are married and struggling in their marriages. I pray for the husbands. I ask you, God, to put your love in their hearts for their wives. And I pray for wives who are struggling, that you would put your respect in their hearts for their husbands. I pray that you would protect them and bless those marriages. I pray that those marriages would be a light to all who know them, and especially any children that have visibility. Lord, again, we are blessed and thankful. And as, as we wait on you and trust in you, our confidence is in you. Blessed be your name. As we come to your table, we ask you, Holy Spirit, search our hearts and see if there's any hurtful way in us. Call those things to our attention. Grant us grace to repent. Turn our hearts more fully towards you. We love you today. We thank you and we give you all the praise. We pray in Jesus' name because you said we could. Amen, church. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.